Michael. Hey, Diane. It is good to see you. And uh, I will report that we got away for the weekend to Vermont, which it was terrific because New England foliage is in full effect. So all the colors and we actually realized we hadn't been to Vermont since the pandemic began. So it was nice to renew what had been for us some annual fall traditions. How are you doing? That is awesome, Michael. I'm so glad to hear it. Um, I'm envious. Uh, we we don't get much <laughs> of that fall foliage here in California where I am. But I will report we are getting rain right now. That's huge. Which is- a huge cause for celebration. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the effects of the last two years has been just having incredible gratitude for things that I hate to say it, but I used to take for granted and uh, droughts and fires and whatnot have made me really appreciate even a light rainstorm. I so hear you. I hear you. We're enjoying that, you know, and it, it's in that vein, Michael, that um I'm really grateful to be in conversation with you for a third season of Class Disrupted. You know, neither of us expected <laughs> expected this. We truly thought we'd do one season and then things would be, quote, back to normal. Or we were hoping for an improved normal. Uh, but, but here we are, season three, and things are far from normal and perhaps never will be. You know, I think the changes to our world and education specifically that were brought on by the initial pandemic seem that they're gonna have ripples well into the future. And and unfortunately it remains to be seen if we will ultimately see positive impacts, um, but that won't keep us from trying to nudge things in that direction. And so th- this season we're doing that by getting really curious and really nuanced about a bunch of fun topics. Well, and if last episode was my turn to grill you along those lines, Diane, about how standards impact curriculum, I believe today you're getting to flip the tables and grill me, if I'm not mistaken. That is the idea. Um, <laughs> definitely my intention, Michael. Um, I've been tracking and getting really interested in one of the big conversations that has been sparked by the pandemic, um, and that is really where kids learn. I, I'm going to admit that as a lifelong public educator, I, I honestly have a really big blind spot about kids learning in places other than, well, honestly, in school buildings. And so like many others, I haven't historically paid much attention to all the other places kids learn formally. Uh, That said, I know you've been tracking this for years. And so I've got a bunch of questions for you. (laughs) Let's dive in. I'm I'm looking forward to them. All right. My first question is super basic. And it, it really is like, where are kids learning during this pandemic, Michael? I read these headlines every day about how districts are missing, in some cases, tens of thousands of students. I've seen reports of pods and private schools and an increase in homeschooling and online schooling and increasing numbers in charters, although in my view, that's still school building. So, you know, kind of the same. But but all of that begs the question, do we have reliable data on where kids learn? And, and what is our best guess about what's happening? as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, totally good question, Diane. It's interesting, before the pandemic, just as quick context for folks, you know, majority, obviously, of folks uh, went to public schools, right? And to your point, that was largely districts, Charters had a nice, nice, healthy, I think roughly 5% or so of enrollment. Private schools had a little bit more than that. Uh, full-time virtual schools were just a few hundred thousand students, so not that significant. Homeschoolers were roughly 
three, three and a half percent of, of students, maybe a little bit more depending on counts. And it's always tricky to get homeschooling counts because they don't always love to report and states don't always collect uh, correctly. So, but as we look into 2020, so the previous school year, of course, the data are by definition always lagging, but some things are starting to become clear. So first, you're right, the number enrolled in districts dropped by roughly one and a half million students. So that's out of a population of roughly 51 million or so. So roughly 3% uh, of, of students dropped out of districts, if you will. This was disproportionately, we can talk about this more later, but disproportionately among young children. So pre-K and kindergarten dropping by 13%. Now, interestingly enough, you said it was traditional, but enrollment in public chartered schools, and we should say all chartered schools are public schools, uh, surged by 7%. So roughly quarter million students up to roughly 8% uh, of the schooling population. Education Next, a survey says like maybe it's declined some back down to 6%, but it seems up regardless. Some of that growth does seem to be in virtual charter schools. So that would be not traditional, right? And then private schooling, we know a lot of people flocked to private schools during this. They found the money because they wanted places that were open and it went up to 11%. And then the really interesting story, I think, is the pods and things of that nature. So homeschooling rose significantly people love to talk about how it had been growing rapidly for years and years. Not really true. Like it grew rapidly from 1999 to 2012. And then it sort of plateaued, to be honest, uh, Diane. And I kind of felt like it'll never get above 10% based on our calculations because most people need a place to send their kids during the day where they'll be safe and with adults and with other friends to learn from and so forth. And yeah, homeschooling is not isolating, but it takes a certain parental structure or family structure to be able to give your kids those experiences. And I was wrong during the pandemic, 11% homeschooled, according to the census. And what's really interesting is black students became the majority of homeschoolers for the first time. They're generally the lowest participation. They went up to 16%. Wow. Right? And so... Um, last thing, which is like, there's some uh, findings recently from uh, research out of Stanford, the 74 did a great piece on it, that suggested that the enrollment drops were highest in places that were all remote. So that says people were looking for in-person options, whether that was pods or private schools or chartered schools. But here's the thing that's interesting to me. It wasn't uniform. Like relative to other families, a disproportionate share of black families actually preferred remote. And it's something we've talked about, of course, that there was great mistrust, not just for the reasons of the pandemic, but because of all the conversations around race and how our institutions have let, you know, so many black and brown families down, not just during the pandemic, but for years now. For years. Right? Forever. And they were seeing (laughs) it now firsthand, right? Mm -hmm. Where the schooling wasn't coming online or they did see the schooling and they didn't like what they saw. This lack of trust in institutions really actually meant that where they were in person, those families just didn't show up. And that's why you saw that rise in homeschooling, I think. Mm. Wow. So that uh, is fascinating. And as you said, it's lagging. It's about last year. Mm-hmm. I know the, the data lags, but um, you know, do we know anything about this year? Has the pandemic you know, we, we've seen some significant changes this year, schools going back into person like ours, where, you know, we were out most of last year, and that's happening across the country. Are there signals or trends? Is it too early to know anything? Yeah, it's a good question. I, here's the thing. There are actually a lot of data starting to emerge. 
saying that enrollment perhaps is not rebounding as people had expected, which is really interesting. According to Titan Partners, one and a half million students are still in pandemic pods this year or, or micro schools. Hmm. That is a finding that wow. I did not expect, uh, right? I thought it would yeah. be more significant than people thought, but I was not like one of those people who thought it'd be in the millions. So according to Titan survey, that's what they think. Los Angeles Unified, in person, they saw a further decline of 27,000 students from last September when it was already down. So that's wow. another drop. The state of Hawaii has roughly 13,000 or so students generally. They're down 2,000 students, down to 11,000 students. So we're seeing this drop persist. Now, it's interesting. First graders seem to be up a little bit. So people that maybe held their kids okay. out of kindergarten, kind of like my family, have sent them back yeah. right into first grade. Uh, although, interestingly enough, as you know, my kids are in a private school, not necessarily what yeah. I expected going in. And But second, third, fourth graders, they're still down. And I would huh. say one other thing, which is we saw a lot of policies, as you know, over the last six to 12 months that put a lot more school choice into action, like West Virginia, Arizona, Florida, and elsewhere, a lot of education savings accounts and other vehicles to make these pods and micro schools and other alternative schooling arrangements way more accessible to way more people that may not have had them before. And so my own sense is that we're seeing a flourishing of options right now. And a lot of families, I think, feel empowered for the first time. They realize, oh, wait, we don't just have to send to the school in our zip code. We actually have more choice, perhaps, than we realized. You know, it's interesting, Michael, it's a little bit of a side note here, but we've been sort of um, tracking a trend uh, around uh, educators mm. really, you know, departing the profession. And one of my hypotheses is that they have a lot of other options to stay in education work, mission work, working with kids, but that are not in the traditional confines. And they similarly are making those choices. And so it's interesting for to hear your stats and wonder if those two groups are matching up and actually working together. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because you've been tracking this for a while now. You've been talking this for at least six months to me. <laughs> and you've basically said that there's this other market materializing where yeah. teachers can get paid if not the same, maybe more in some cases, and have considerably more autonomy or flexibility over those working arrangements, and maybe not the same mm. security, but it creates this optionality that I think people haven't known before. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, which brings me to this question of, um, you know, what might drive families to choose something other than brick and mortar schools in their local geography? And I'm, there's a historical set of reasons, but then there's also this interesting set today, and you've already, you know, surfaced something is definitely happening with um, uh, black families on this front. And, and that, of course, is not surprising given how poorly served um, they are both historically and currently, but uh, other other you know, known reasons why families choose something other than their local school? Yeah, so this is maybe my chance to geek out if yours was on the curriculum last <laughs> right. week. But the uh, I'll keep it high level. But you know, I, I love this theory, jobs to be done, which is sort of the yes. set of reasons that cause people to move and take action. And before the pandemic, we had done this research about why people would switch and choose independent schools and chartered schools. Um, and it was interesting. We saw high level four jobs to be done. The first was essentially parents saying, my kid's in trouble. I need to help get them out of yeah. trouble, right? That makes sense. 
often, by yeah, the way, we success. See that. We see that. Yeah, and yeah. often success, by the way, was getting that child to a place where they could go back to the neighborhood school. And interestingly enough, but the second one we see a lot of is like, um, I want to be in a community of like-minded uh, individuals, and that could be for uh, you know any set of sort of norms and values and beliefs. Okay, the third was. I trust that my child is getting a good enough academic education. I really want to focus on the whole child. It's something that we talk a lot about, right? On social, emotional, life skills, habits of success. I want a well-rounded child. I'm not interested in the rat race of the academics for its own sake. Um, And then the fourth is really all about the rats race that we've talked a lot about, which is essentially parents saying like, no, I want my kid to follow my plan for them. And I want the school to help get them into that four-year dream college of uh, that I see for so them. So optimizing for a particular It is outcome. very like, you know, and you see this friction a lot of times with schools where they want to be all about, say, the third one I listed, right? The whole child mm-hmm. and the parents they're attracting are all about like, get my kid into Stanford or whatever it yeah. is, right? And so I, my sense is that the pandemic hasn't changed those jobs, but it's exacerbated several of them, right? Like the trouble is obvious, right? You're not in person right. that my kid right. needs support now, get me into there, right? Or Yeah, just compounded on so many Exactly, levels. and it's just exacerbated yeah. and frankly for all of them. And so I think the order of magnitude and the passion around all of them is at heights that we've never seen before. And it's, I, I think, you know, we've seen lotteries in districts for a long time and parents choosing to have their kids go to schools that maybe were not their neighborhood school, you know, but less of a change than perhaps a charter school or an independent school. But I'm curious, you know, because you've seen kids switch into your schools and I suppose some right. out for a long time. What, what have you learned over the years of this? Yeah, I mean, everything you shared, Michael, really resonates. I think in my experience, what, what I might be able to add to this is that um, it's a pretty significant choice when a family decides to not go with whatever sort of the normal traditional option is. Um, and there there can be a lot of cost to that, if you will, from the community mm. and friendships and also there's there's a lot of emotion that's, you know, wrapped up in that, that it feels like judgment for people who aren't making that choice. So there's a, a bunch of stuff that goes on to, to suggest that people really, it's a big choice um, when they make a choice to do something different. Um, and, you know, I think that um, historically it's been a private school, which for some people that was kind of their normal choice setup. And then as a charter school leader, we've experienced this for 20 years where, you know, many, many families choose to stick with the known quantity over a new school or a school of choice, even though it seems to be offering more of what they want. Um, And I, I think generally when people do choose what I notice, it's either at a natural transition point. So it's much easier to make a different choice when you're either entering kindergarten or entering a middle school or entering a high school when there's a natural transition. And as as you said, when it's not a natural transition time, what we see most often is that something really, really isn't yep. working for the child. Um, and and you, you talked a bunch about that just a minute ago. Um, of course, 
we haven't talked yet about pe- families do move. Yep. So, you know, that is a factor. Although in my experience, a lot of families work really hard to keep the school year steady, quite frankly. Like they plan their moving around it and whatnot so they don't disrupt it. Um, and so, you know, one of the reasons that I am really interested in school design is because people really don't make these whole school changes very often. And it's why this, this, trend and theme is really interesting to me. Yeah. And just to amplify what you just said, Diane, is so interesting is, you know, you talked about how big a decision it is and the social dimensions to it with the fabric of your community and people having expectations of you. And we're social beings, like we care about others' perceptions and the emotion, right? Like all the research on learning loss aversion, or excuse me, not learning loss, loss aversion, (laughs) uh, Freudian slip there, I suppose. But the, uh, (laughs) <laughs> right, be, be, becomes so worked up in this of like, what am I missing right. out on if I right. don't go with that neighborhood school or they don't have the homecoming and football team experience right. that like I perhaps did not like as much as I think I did at the time, but I idealize right in in in, in my yeah. mind, and I think it's interesting and that nostalgia that we've talked about totally a lot right. That nostalgia holds parents. us back, right? Yeah. Those are real. Yeah. You know, when when we think about jobs to be done, we think about what's pushing you toward a switch and there's push factors like it's not good enough pull like of the promise of what could be but maybe more interesting is the anxiety and the habits that hold you back from switching and we tend not to talk about that so much and what I think is interesting around that is you know you talked about the transitions people being more likely to make it then I think that's right it's why I think you see more younger students not in school traditional schools because you know, for the first time they were going to enter a school building, in effect, they didn't have that community, those friendships and so forth. Right. And parents looked at it and were like, wait, they're not going to develop those things. I get to choose now and, and start whole cloth and make sure they have those friends. Whereas in middle or high school, I suspect a lot of students were way more part of that decision-making process and saying, I don't want to leave my friends behind, right? I think that's that's definitely consistent with my experience. And, um, you know, you've got other voices making those decisions. And I was curious about the difference between younger and older. And you've answered some of those. Uh, I, I'm also wondering about the next phase of life. What about college, Michael? I've seen a, a lot of headlines and some data reporting that the number of students entering college since the pandemic has dipped pretty significantly. I've seen some nuance on that around males, so I'm curious if we know anything about that. Um, and it's the, the little bit of pulling apart that I've done seems to suggest that a lot of that dip might be in community college going, which that's a whole other conversation we could have given the democratic proposal to heavily, heavily invest in community college, wondering if that's the right choice. Um, but anyway, what do you know about college? Yeah, there are some huge headlines here and without getting too much into the specific data, there are dramatic declines, as you said, at community colleges in particular, like just significant last year. And they seem to be significant this year as well so far is what I'm hearing anecdotally. And here's the thing that's so interesting about that. Community college tends to be counter-cyclical. And what I mean by that is when times are rough and people are looking for jobs, they tend to go to community college. Well, we had, an, we had a recession last year. That did not happen, right? And so I suspect that's because community colleges weren't really that forward-leaning into online learning. Uh, They didn't create accessible options for parents that couldn't leave a kid at home now 
right? Because like their school wasn't in session. Maybe they didn't have the short-term mix of programs that would get someone back into the job uh, market quicker that they wanted. And so, you know, we interviewed one community college president on my Future You podcast around higher ed, and he was talking about online learning as correspondence courses. Oh, no. So what is that, 20, 30 years ago at this point, right? So I think it just shows the dismissive attitude toward the flexibility that adults who make up a huge percentage of college really need. And and, and here's the bigger picture, though, which is that all undergrad, except for for for-profit universities, which are more online, had declines. It was roughly 13% overall for freshmen. And it fell disproportionately on low-income and minority students. So a lot of people are speculating this is kind of a missing class, right? Of oh the most, gosh. the students that probably needed the social capital that comes with the degree to get ahead in the workforce, maybe more than anyone else. And so there are serious concerns from equity perspectives around what's the ripple effect longer term. Now, just like to flip this on its head for a moment, interestingly enough, enrollment increased in graduate programs and <laughs> especially part-time and minority students. So what's going on there? I don't know, but I think <laughs> graduate programs tend to be more online. And oh. so roughly, uh, I think roughly before the pandemic, 35 to 40% of master's programs were fully online already. So in some ways, I think that sector was better prepared and could create more flexible options um, because we know people wanted even really short-term options that were not degrees, just certificates, credentials that would quickly be job relevant and get them back into the workforce. Uh, fascinating, a fascinating twist and uh, a little bit worrisome as we just continue to educate the educated and leave the others <laughs> yes. behind. And it makes me wonder, you know, we, that was just a whole bunch of statistics there that we talked through. And so, and you've alluded to this, does this all really matter? Or is it still mm. around the edges? I mean, these sound like big numbers, but when we, you're talking about 55 million plus students in, in America, will it actually impact the system? Will, will anything really change, do you think? I'm super curious your answer on this, Diane. Um, but my, my sense is that I think it's likely to matter more than we might expect, but in the longer run. And what I mean by that is, no, I don't think pods are going to be a majority of schooling. I don't think most people are going to go to micro schools. I'm not sure they even should. But it's a significant enough minority of people that are making these decisions, which has ripple effects on the system. So seeds are being sown right now. And parents, A, realize they have more choice. They're experiencing new options and having deeper senses of what schooling could look like. A lot of these micro schools are introducing mastery or competency-based learning, for example. Well, that's going to change their minds, right? There are a lot of formal instances of these pods or micro schools now being created where we're seeing companies spring up that uh, are raising venture capital and other things to like create formal mechanisms. Th- those, not all of them will succeed, but some of them are going to grow. And I think that'll increase the pressure on the existing system to innovate or else they'll keep losing more students. And you know, you lose 10 students in a very tight budget and that has impacts on your per pupil funding with fixed cost. You can't just like adapt very quickly to that, right? It's a huge ripple effect. And so, you know, even with these school choice trends that I think are going to have more popular support behind them, 
I think, you know, in the short term, I've been dismayed at the lack of real change, but I think it leaves me more optimistic that districts will have to figure out ways to be responsive or else uh, in the longer run. What do you think? Goodness. I wanted to talk with you about this because it's really provoking me. Uh, You know, I've spent two and a half decades building and redesigning schools. And as you know, uh, those designs include expeditionary learning and elements that really break down the walls between school and community. And so I'm not in schools that have these really tightly bound, um, you know, ways of doing things. And right now, I am feeling like my thinking to date has been super constrained. Well, wow, that's that's it's, fascinating because I w- I would not have put you in that <laughs> corner. <laughs> well, it's really you know given what we know about the science of learning and what it takes to prepare students for a fulfilled life. And given the technology we have access to, and as you and I both think, education has not truly, you know, really taken advantage of yet. And and honestly, all of the rich community resources that exist, I'm I'm really questioning myself of why does school have to be in a school building five days a week? And, you know, even in my mind, that's sort of been a given. And and as we're talking about this and we're, we're seeing what's going on, there are, there are so many issues with that traditional model. And I really am starting to wonder if the pandemic will ultimately, and all the, you know, extenuating factors and ripples will enable enough people to say, no, you know, it's time to, to rethink. And in a way that presses real options and real innovation at, at a scale that is interesting and meaningful. Um, you know, the reality is school is not working for a significant number of students and families. And I would argue for our communities and our society, quite frankly. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just starting to wonder, are we seeing, are we finally seeing the catalyst to meaningful change? Um, and so, of course, that's a big question we're grappling with here, yes, Michael. <laughs> and it, it makes me really excited for our next episode. Before we wrap, whew, what have you been thinking about reading, watching that's not education so people don't think we're completely one-dimensional? <laughs> uh, good question. Um, so I, I just finished a book called Maverick, which is an intellectual biography of Thomas Sowell. And I confess. Uh, so it's written by Jason Riley of the Wall Street Journal. I, I totally embarrassed Diane. I, I wasn't familiar at all with his works before or some of the intellectual tradition even from which they come, which feels like a bit of a travesty as I'm saying this to you. You probably were more familiar given that Hoover Institution at Stanford is in your backyard, but I just hadn't been exposed to really any of it. And uh, for those that don't know, uh, Tom Sowell was born as a black orphan in the Jim Crow South, but he's had this incredibly voluminous career writing across a lot of different topics from race to economic history and so much more. And he comes across as a really independent and important thinker who's never struck to the orthodoxy opinions. So as a result, I learned a lot from it, Diane. I'll, I'll say one takeaway I had, which is similar to a lot of our conversations, which is the importance of not leaving any individual behind and the value of each individual and realizing 
they're not described by any one thing or no label should constrain their ceiling, if you will. And so I, I was, uh, that was a message that I took to heart from out from it. What, what's on That's your list? Fascinating. Um, you know, soul has done some writing on charters, but I didn't know his personal history. Um, and so I'm fascinated by it. I am deep into a book called design justice by Sasha, uh, Costanza chalk. And, um, Costanza Chalk is in your neck of the woods, Michael, a faculty member at MIT and Harvard. And, you know, my work with Summit has been all about design and redesign and using what we believe are sort of the most advanced approaches. Um, but, but this design justice community that is described in the book is calling into question the limitations of some of those practices. And I think it goes back to what you just said, who gets overlooked in the design process and who sort of gets left out and left on the margins. And, you know, to their credit, they're not just being critical, they're really offering some interesting, promising new practices. And so I, I think it's, it's filled with some really important ideas, um, yeah, love the, I, lo- I love the hope. I love the solutions, right? <laughs> that's where we need. And that's look out of all this as we sum up. I think, you know, there's a lot of change happening. No one knows exactly where it's going to land. But if it lands with all of us being more responsive to the individuals that need it the most, that's a win for society. And I think we remain optimistic that we're seeing movement, hopefully, in that direction. And with that, I'll just thank all of you for listening to us once again on Class Disrupted. Mm-hmm.